Today on the Word Preacher Podcast, do leaders bear the sins of those they teach? And why do leaders care so much about marriage and chastity? I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Word Preacher Podcast. All right, our Come Follow Me curriculum brings us to the book of Jacob. Nephi, uh, early on, uh, passes away in, in the book of Jacob, and uh, another of his uh, descendants is, is made the king, is uh, named Nephi, um, but his brother is made the spiritual leader of the people of Nephi, um, and uh, and he kind of takes over the responsibility of teaching them the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the focus of these small plates, the records of the spiritual and, and uh, religious prophecies of the people of Nephi. So this becomes really important as we get into the book of Jacob. This immediately becomes the focus, what Jacob taught the people spiritually. We can look at this in Jacob chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, to kind of get our first taste. He says, Wherefore I, Jacob, gave unto them these words as I taught them in the temple, having first obtained my errand from the Lord. For I, Jacob, and my brother Joseph, had been consecrated priests and teachers of this people by the hand of Nephi. And we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence, wherefore by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. So this is kind of an interesting concept, because aren't men punished for their own sins? How could the sins of others come upon leaders of the church? Which is really what Jacob and his brother Joseph were. They were the leaders of the church, consecrated priests and teachers. Um, I mean, don't they just, you know, do their best in their calling, but but their sins are just their own, right? Um, we can see another example of the same teaching somewhere else. The Book of Mormon is not the only place where we can see this. This is from Doctrine and Covenants, section 68, verse 25. And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion or in any of her stakes which are organized, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, when eight years old, the sin be on the, upon the heads of the parents. Well, that's kind of an interesting take. Here we have uh, parents receiving the sins of their kids. What if you have a wayward kid? What if you have Cain? Uh, does that mean Adam 
also is going to be punished for Cain's transgressions in addition to his own? Of course, to understand this, uh, it comes with the context of understanding that people in the position where they receive a calling to preside have certain responsibilities that if neglected, they answer to God for the discharge of these, these obligations. Um, now, this isn't just church leaders that have callings to preside. Parents also are in this same situation. They are called, if you are a parent, you can consider yourself assigned by God to preside over your family to some degree. Uh, the exact nature of those presiding uh, abilities kind of depends a little bit on uh, on the situation in the family. For example, if uh, a husband has passed away, uh, a mother presides or extended family can lend support as needed. Um, the general rule is the father presides over his home in love and righteousness. In either case, whether it's a mother or a father, they cannot expect that others will take up the roles of instructor that they do not. You can't assume that a youth is going to gain their testimony out in the mission field. It's not wise to assume that church leaders uh, in your ward will provide all the necessary spiritual and scriptural knowledge for your children. This may not happen. You answer for the discharge of your responsibilities. At the same time, leaders have a certain stewardship for those that they are assigned to teach. So beyond the, the parent role, uh, church leaders that receive callings have some responsibility for those in their stewardship. And though the length and type of that stewardship may be different, and God is capable of making things right if, if a leader does not do what they are supposed to do, um, the way in which any individual handles the talents given to them matters, just as Jesus taught in his parable. A person who is given five talents is not expected to bury them. You can't assume it's all going to work out. There are things that God expects you to do. God was not exactly thrilled with Jonah, for example, when he tried to flee from his responsibility to teach the people of Nineveh. This is kind of important because this puts the perspective of this called individual uh, into focus a little more clearly. Jonah didn't answer to the people of Nineveh for his neglect. He answered to God. While prophets and apostles have responsibilities to those who are in their stewardship, they don't answer to the people. They answer to God. And I think that's really important because it means like protests or, you know, gathering signatures or starting initiatives to, to try and convince prophets that they should be doing something a certain way. That's not how it works. 
I mean, it's perfectly fine to inform a leader about a situation. If you have a local leader that may need to know about your scheduling conflicts as to whether you're able to accept a calling, that's, that's totally appropriate to have a conversation about that. But sustaining a leader requires faith beyond, are they doing what I think they should be doing? An excellent example of this can be seen in the Old Testament. Um, when you th consider the widow of Zarephath, Elijah learned about her situation. She said, you know, I'm about to make this meal for me and my son, and then we're going to starve. We're going to die. So Elijah, knowing that this is her situation, still tells her, do as thou hast said, only first make a little cake for me. And he promises that if she does this, that the cruise of oil will not fail, nor the barrel of meal run out for as long as there is a famine in that land. And it happened exactly as Elijah said. This is what it means to sustain a leader, even when they are maybe doing things a little bit differently than we would do them, understanding that they don't answer to us, that there is a responsibility that they have where if they are not doing things the way that God wants, they are held accountable for that. In, in, in a sense, you could consider it, just like Jacob did, that the sins of the people come upon them if they do not answer to God appropriately. And so it's very important. This is a heavy responsibility. And it's very important that we follow the example of those in the scriptures and those around us who sustain prophets, apostles, and local leaders in these difficult responsibilities. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to the second question. Why is it that leaders, especially today, seem so concerned with marriage and chastity? Um, of course, the answer to that is it's not just today. Let's, let's look at some, some of the passages in the book of Jacob. Uh, this is Jacob chapter 2, verses 23 through 30, that reads as follows. But the word of God burdens me because of your grosser crimes. For behold, thus saith the Lord, this people begin to wax in iniquity. They understand not the scriptures, for they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms because of the things which were written concerning David and Solomon his son. Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord? Wherefore, thus saith the Lord, I have led this people forth out of the land of Jerusalem by the power of mine arm, that I might raise up unto me a righteous branch from the fruit of the loins of Joseph. Wherefore, I, the Lord God, will not suffer that this people shall do like unto them of old." Wherefore, my brethren, hear me, and hearken to the word of the Lord. For there shall not any man among you have, save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. For I, the Lord, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms 
are an abomination before me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Wherefore, this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will commend my people, otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. All right, this whole idea behind chastity um, is important to understand because there's a lot of people in modern society who decry prophets for getting involved in things that, quote, don't concern them. You know, the, the sort of people that suggest if two consenting adults do something, it can't be wrong. As long as there's consent, that's, that's the silver bullet, the key to right and wrong. Uh, there are certainly those who even persuasively ask, how is it that what people do in their bedrooms can hurt you? What harm does that cause to you? And in spite of these seemingly persuasive arguments, for thousands of years, the Judeo-Christian tradition has issued commandments surrounding marriage and intimacy. And in comparison to one of the most problematic sins in the Book of Mormon, namely pride, which is what Jacob was addressing just before these verses that I read, the pride of the people, um, sins regarding chastity are considered grosser. And, and this is why it has a tremendous influence on people, an easily underestimated influence on people. People currently under its influence cannot understand its influence. It is incredibly easy to get swept away in something. Intimacy is not like other physical contact. I mean, this may fall under the category of no duh, but shaking hands with someone or rubbing their shoulders, you could do that with a friend, and that might just be friendship. But people spend exorbitant amounts of money and even in tragic cases, they are willing to victimize or traffic victims, innocent victims, to satiate the urges associated with their desire to be intimate. It's incredibly powerful. The commitment between a husband and wife to be true to one another and to raise children together, that makes a tremendous difference in how these feelings can be handled. Intimacy outside of the bonds of a husband and wife is, because of this, incomplete. It stirs up these very powerful feelings without the commitment and the sacrifice and the loyalty and all of the other love, the permanent types of love that are supposed to accompany them. It's only a piece of this, and it will never be enough to satisfy. And in, in almost all cases, well, let me, let me alter that. In all cases, outside of the bonds 
of what happens between a husband and wife. It is hurtful. It is harmful. And you can consider this like even in an intuitive sense. When you consider if there's a spouse, even who's maybe not Christian at all or religious at all, if there's somebody who has a spouse and their spouse cheats on them, they go and stray, um, it's a very natural thing to expect that the one who was faithful feels hurt and betrayed. Because what happened between two consenting adults was a lot more serious. It was a lot more impactful. Um, even outside of that, if it's a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, and one of the two of them even not even um, participates in that level of intimacy, if they make out with someone else, we would expect that the person who was faithful should also be upset, feel betrayed. This is a perfectly natural thing that we all intuitively understand, uh, even those of us who are not really religious. Because all of these feelings associated with the bonds between a man and woman are meant to be guarded by covenant. It's an incredible protection when a husband and wife can trust one another and love one another with complete fidelity and raise a family in love and righteousness. That is a complete and wholesome situation. And well, God is concerned about us. He sends his prophets to protect people from terrible pain, from cheapness, from betrayal, by living a chaste life life. He also gives these laws to protect the most vulnerable among us, little children. Jacob kind of mirrors this counsel uh, as a prophet of God. This is what he declares in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Wherefore ye shall remember your children, how that ye have grieved their hearts because of the example that ye have set before them. And also, remember that ye may, because of your filthiness, bring your children unto destruction, and their sins be heaped upon your heads at the last day. O my brethren, hearken unto my words. Arouse the faculties of your souls. Shake yourselves that ye may awake from the slumber of death and loose yourselves from the pains of hell, that ye may not become angels to the devil, to be cast into that lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And now I, Jacob, spake many more things unto the people of Nephi, warning them against fornication and lasciviousness and every kind of sin, telling them the awful consequences of them. Uh, this goes right back into what we were talking about with the responsibility that parents have. We will answer to God for the discharge of our responsibilities in these roles. So what about that whole plural marriage bit? 
Um, it sounded like Jacob said that it was an abomination. Of course, there exist circumstances in which plural marriage is acceptable to God, and explicitly mentioned by Jacob are circumstances in which God wills or wants to raise up seed to increase the population quicker. There can be other circumstances. Certainly, we may not know all of them. Abraham and Jacob are examples of individuals that had multiple wives, and they did not violate any expectation from God. And the children from these marriages were blessed because of their association. It's also important to note that the circumstances in which plural marriage is acceptable do not exist today any more than they existed in the days of Jacob. Men should not seek multiple wives. Doing so is likely to jeopardize standing in the church and before God. Those circumstances change when directed by a prophet of God. He tells us when he wills something to be different. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young are absolutely uh, prophets of God who received guidance from God and did nothing wrong in their marriages. Wilford Woodruff, also a prophet of God, who received guidance from God that the time for adhering to this practice had once again passed. If in doubt whether a particular practice is acceptable or not at, at the current moment, modern prophets and apostles are your best bet. Don't get caught up in the, where in the New Testament did Jesus talk about coffee, or tea, or modesty, or homosexuality, or heroin. These things can be solved by studying not only the scriptures, but adhering to the words of modern prophets and apostles that he has called. God wants us to become better than we are, and his commandments help us. God sends prophets to speak on marriage and chastity, not to hinder us, but to help us and to protect us. Finding fault with prophets for their prophesying is pointless. They would be held accountable if they failed to deliver God's message to us. We appreciate all the support for the Word Preacher podcast. Uh, next week, we will be looking at Jacob chapters 5 through 7, discussing olive trees and antichrists. There's a lot more that we did not discuss in Jacob's teachings today, and I encourage you to study independently and together in your classes and, uh, and families. And of course, as always, fight on. Thank <laughs> you.